Section 8 of Rational Theology and Christian Philosophy, Volume 2, by John Tullock. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3, John Smith, Foundations of a Christian Philosophy, Part 3. 2. Superstition and atheism are the two great antitheses of divine knowledge, or as Smith calls them, the anti-deities that are set up against it. The former is the darkening of the divine intelligence in man. Quote, its true cause and rise is nothing else but a false opinion of the deity that renders him dreadful and terrible, austere and apt to be angry, yet impotent and easy to be appeased again by some flattering devotions, especially if performed with sanctimonious shows and a solemn sadness of mind. The picture of God which some Christians have drawn, wherein sourness and arbitrariness appear so much, too much resembles this. Though I should not dislike, says our author, quote, thoughts of future torment, which I doubt even good men may have cause to press home upon their spirits, yet I think it little commends God, and as little benefits us, to fetch all this horror and astonishment from the contemplations of a deity which should always be the most serene and lovely. Our apprehensions of the deity should be such as might ennoble our spirits, and not debase them. A right knowledge of God would beget a freedom and liberty of soul within us, and not servility. It is strangely those who picture God as an angry deity, or mere power of vengeance, who are at the same time most ready to imagine him so impotently mutable that his favor may be won again by uncouth devotions and formal praises. This composition of fear and flattery in the superstitious mind especially impressed Smith, it is born, he says, of our guilty and selfish apprehensions. As the pure and enlightened soul beholds in God an image of all moral perfection, so the unhallowed mind interprets its own fears and waywardness into a deity of terror and caprice. Wherever God is apprehended as a mere power to be pleased, rather than as a living source of light and blessing to all who trust in him, superstition is more or less present. And worship, when directed to the outward vesture of religion, rather than its inward spirit, is of the nature of superstition. We by no means get rid of it, as some imagine, when we have expelled it out of our churches, or expunged it out of our books. Quote, no, for all this superstition may enter into our chambers and creep into our closets. It may twine about our secret devotions, and actuate our forms of belief and orthodox opinions, when it hath no place else to shroud itself or hide its head in. We may think to flatter the deity by these, and to bribe it with them, when we are grown weary of more pompous solemnities. Nay, it may mix itself with a seeming faith in Christ, as I doubt it doth now in too many, who, laying aside all sober and serious care of true piety, think it sufficient to offer up the active and passive righteousness of their Saviour to a severe and rigid justice, to make expiation for those sins they can be willing to allow themselves in." Atheism is closely akin to superstition, so much so that it may seem to have the same father with it. Superstition could be well content if there were no God to trouble or disquiet it, and atheism thinks there is none. And as the former is engendered by a base opinion of the deity as cruel and tyrannical, so the latter arises where the same sour and ghastly apprehension of God comes in contact with more stout and surly natures, and provokes them to negation and defiance. Such a false conception of the divine either subdues men to fear, or exasperates them, and stirs them up to, quote, contend with that being which they cannot bear, and to destroy that which would deprive them of their own liberty. 
atheism could never have so easily crept into the world had not superstition made way and opened a back door for it it could not so easily have banished the belief of a deity had not that first accused and condemned it as destructive to the peace of mankind and therefore it hath always justified and defended itself by superstition if the superstitious man thinks that god is altogether like himself which indeed is a character most proper to such the atheist will soon say in his heart there is no god and will judge it not without some appearance of reason to be better there were none Close quote. the character of atheism may be gathered from quote, the confessions of the epicureans who though they seemed to acknowledge a deity yet i doubt not but those that search into their writings will soon embrace tully's censure of them Close quote. their great maxim was to rid the world of superstition by getting quit of all objects of superstitious dread observing the apprehensions of men in the view of the stupendous events and effects of nature lucretius following the steps of his great master quote, undertakes so to solve all those knots into which superstition was tied up by unfolding the secrets of nature as that men might find themselves loosened from those savi domini and crudeles tyranni as he calls the vulgar creeds of the deity Close quote. but rightly viewed there is no inconsistency betwixt the widest knowledge of natural causes and true religion while such a knowledge would indeed disperse superstition it would only confirm a just and wise view of divine agency quote, herein all the epicureans who are not the true but foster fathers of that natural philosophy they brag of and of which indeed democritus was the first author do miserably blunder themselves for though a lawful acquaintance with all the events and phenomena that show themselves upon this mundane stage would contribute much to free men's minds from the slavery of dull superstition yet would it also breed a sober and amiable belief of the deity as it did in all the pythagoreans platonists and other sects of philosophers if we may believe themselves and an ingenuous knowledge hereof would be as fertile with religion as the ignorance thereof in affrighted and base minds is with superstition the epicurean theory of nature being a congeries of atoms moving to and fro in empty space even if accepted furnishes no explanation of the origin of things for it takes for granted the chief thing to be explained namely the principle of motion underlying all phenomena cicero says smith pointed this out long ago and so stopped the wheel of this over hasty philosophy granting the primordials of lucretius atoms and the void the original movement of the atoms still requires to be explained and supposing we allow this power of motion to be seated in nature we should still inquire how such a force and power could subsist in nature and further quote, how these movable and rambling atoms come to place themselves so orderly in the universe and observe that absolute harmony and decorum in all their motions as if they kept time with the musical laws of some almighty mind that composed all their lessons and measured out their dances up and down in the universe Close quote. to suppose all this marvelous conservation of force and beauty and order of movement without an intelligent first cause originating and controlling all is according to smith quote, as if one that undertakes to analyze any learned book should tell us how so many letters meeting together in several combinations should beget all that sense that is contained therein without minding that wit that casts them all into their several ranks Close quote. the secret of atheistic thought is frequently to be found in a sort of half-knowledge when men attracted by the course of scientific discovery and the outside of nature unlearn their original and inbred notions of religion without rising to any higher or more luminous conceptions of the divine but the study of nature in itself is highly religious 
it may modify and enlarge our thoughts but it has no tendency to shut out from us the presence of the deity on the contrary all sober and wise minds feel the necessity of this nobler spiritual presence to illuminate nature and elevate human life the idea of god not only answers to our rational instincts but harmonizes better than anything else with all our experience and fits in so to speak as the natural crown of all our meditations perplexities and hopes Quote, it is not possible for anything well to bear up the spirit of that man that shall calmly meditate with himself on the true state and condition of this world should that mind and wisdom be taken away from it which governs every part of it and overrules all those disorders that at any time begin to break forth in it were there not an omniscient skill to temper and fitly to rank in their due places all those quarrelsome and extravagant spirits that are in the world it would soon prove an uninhabitable place and sink under the heavy weight of its own confusion remove god and providence out of the world and then we have nothing to depend upon but chance and fortune the humours and passions of men and he that could then live in it had need to be as blind as these lords would be that he might not see his own misery always staring upon him Close quote. three having thus defined the mode of attaining the divine and marked off its true character smith proceeds to expound its main principles immortality and god there can be no religion without these two fundamentals to which he added the communication of god to mankind through christ although he was only able to treat of the preliminary aspect of this subject under the name of prophecy one immortality may be said to be the primary datum of religious belief without this man sinks back into the mere order of nature and whatever higher elements his life may embrace there is no permanent spring of elevation or religious interest in it indeed without a soul or substantive reality of divine life transcending the common life of nature which he shares with other beings man cannot be said to have any true knowledge of god for it is only by a contemplation of our own souls that we can climb up to the understanding of the deity three preliminary considerations must be kept in view in reference to the question of immortality first the natural belief which men commonly have that their souls are immortal secondly the immediate relation of the truth to our spiritual experience and thirdly the principle that no substantive and indivisible thing ever perisheth there may be said to be a consensus gentium in favor of the idea of immortality and although this consensus in some things may be no proof of their truth yet quote, we cannot easily conceive how any prime notion that hath no dependency on any other antecedent to it should be generally entertained did not the common dictate of nature or reason acting alike in all men move them to conspire together in the embracing of it Close quote. again it is only possible for us to know what our souls really are by self-reflection we can only steal from them their own secrets by direct converse with themselves quote, all those discourses which have been written of the soul's heraldry will not blazon it so well to us as itself will do when we turn our own eyes in upon it it will soon tell us its own royal pedigree and noble extraction by those sacred hieroglyphics which it bears upon itself finally the imperishableness of every true substance is a direct corollary from one of the first principles of the atheistic philosophy itself quote, ex nihilo fieri nil et in nihilum nil posse reverti and indeed if we collate all our own observations and experience with such as the history of former times hath delivered to us we shall not find that ever any substance was quite lost according to quote, the common distinction all substantial being is either body and so divisible and of three dimensions 
or else it is something which is not properly a body or matter, and so hath no such dimensions. And this is nothing else but what is commonly called spirit. Though yet we will not be too critical in depriving everything which is not grossly corporeal of all kind of extension. Close quote. Footnote. Discourse 3, pages 72 and 73. This is a curious anticipation of Moore's favorite idea about the applicability of extension to spiritual being. End of footnote. In conducting his argument, Smith, after the manner of his time, fails to keep quite distinct his various lines of thought. But the following may be enumerated as the main grounds on which he rests the proof of the soul's immortality. A. Its incorporeity. B. Its spontaneity. C its power of forming abstract and necessary truths, and lastly, d, the indestructibility of its moral attributes. a. He views the question of the soul's incorporeity, first, ab absurdo. For let us make the supposition that the substance of the soul is nothing else but body, in however subtle a form, then of course it is infinitely divisible as all bodies are. It is composed of the particles of other bodies, and, quote, must receive its augmentation from that food nourishment which is taken in as the body doth, so that the very grass we walk over in the fields, the dust and mire in the streets that we tread upon, may, according to the true meaning of this dull philosophy, after many refinings, macerations, and maturations, which nature performs by the help of motion, spring up into so many rational souls, and prove as wise as any Epicurean, and discourse as subtly of what it once was when it lay drooping in a senseless passiveness. Close quote. The conceit is so gross, in his opinion, as not to deserve any serious answer. A witty sarcasm of Plutarch is enough to confute it. He enters at the same time into a detailed exposure of the Lucretian doctrine of the genesis of the soul from the finest and most minute atoms, atoms of such perfect spherical and small figures as may be capable of the swiftest movement. Admitting such atoms, the question arises, whence their movement? and admitting the power of motion to be originally inherent in them, he farther asks, quote, How shall we force up these particles of matter into any true and real perceptions, and make them perceive their own or others' motions, motus sensiferi, close quote, as Lucretius himself calls them? The power of sensation can no more spring from any such combination of atoms, he says, than, quote, Vision can rise out of a glass, whereby it should be able to perceive these idola that paint themselves upon it, though it were never so exactly polished, and they much finer than they are or can be. A cause can never rise in its production above the height of its own nature and virtue, and the smallest corpuscula in the shape of atoms, which have no power of sense in themselves, can never produce it by any kind of concourse or motion. Lucretius virtually admits this, by calling in the aid of a mobilis vis, something of the nature of an efflux of matter rather than matter itself, to account for the primary motions of sense. He may not allow this to be called anything else but matter, yet he cannot explain what kind of matter it is. Quote, By it he understands not merely an active power of motion, but a more subtle energy, whereby the force and nature of any motion is perceived and insinuated by its own strength in the bodies moved, as if these sorry bodies by their impetuous jostling together could awaken one another out of their drowsy lethargy, and make each other hear their mutual impetuous knocks, which is as absurd as to think a musical instrument should hear its own sounds, and take pleasure in those harmonious airs that are played upon it. For that which we call sensation is not the motion or impression which one body makes upon another, but a recognition of that motion, and therefore to attribute that to a body 
is to make a body privy to its own acts and passions, to act upon itself, and to have a true and proper self-feeling virtue. Close quote. Advancing in his attack on the Lucretian doctrine, Smith contends that even if it could explain the origin of sense, there is a higher principle of knowledge in man which it is wholly unable to explain. Lucretius, it is true, does not allow any such higher principle. All our knowledge is based by him on the senses. But according to our author, he is refuted by his own arguments against the skeptics, in reply to whose assertion that nothing can be known, he maintains that in such a case we cannot know so much as that we know nothing, or recognize any distinction betwixt knowledge and ignorance. The senses themselves cannot yield us this distinction, for they have no power of discrimination or judgment, and report merely their own affections, which they always do faithfully, whether sound or unsound. In the senses themselves there is and can be no mistake. Quote, when the eye finds the sun's circle represented within itself of no greater bigness than a foot diameter, it is not at all herein mistaken, nor a distempered palate when it tastes a bitterness in the sweetest honey. All is true qua the mere sense. But a higher principle of reflection or reason comes in to modify and correct our sensations, and without this principle we could not make a beginning of knowledge at all. We could never get beyond the confused and indeterminate mass of our own sensations, nor realize ourselves as rational unities capable of science. And this higher rational consciousness, or cognitive power, whereby we judge and discern things, is so far from being a body that, according to our author, quote, it must retract and withdraw itself from all bodily operation, whensoever it will nakedly discern truth. For should our souls always mould their judgment of things according to those impressions which seem to be framed thereof in the body, they must then do nothing else but chain up errors and delusions one with another instead of truth. As should the judgments of our understandings wholly depend upon the sight of our eyes, we should then conclude that our mere accesses from any visible object have such a magical power to change the magnitudes of visible objects, and to transform them into all varieties of figures and fashions, and so attribute all that variety to them which we find in our corporeal perceptions. Or should we judge of gustables by our taste, we should attribute to one and the self-same thing all that variety which we find in our own palates, which is an unquestionable argument that that power whereby we discern of things, and make judgments of them different and sometimes contrary to those perceptions that are the necessary results of all organical functions, is something distinct from the body. And therefore, though the soul, as Plato hath well observed, be various and divisible accidentally in these sensations and motions wherein it extends and spreads itself, as it were, upon the body, and so, according to the nature and measure thereof, perceives its impressions, yet it is indivisible, returning into itself. Whensoever it will speculate truth itself, it will not then listen to the several clamors and votes of these rude senses, which always speak with divided tongues, but it consults some clearer oracle within itself, and therefore Plotinus hath well concluded concerning the body, should a man make use of his body in his speculations, it will entangle his mind with so many contradictions that it will be impossible to attain to any true knowledge of things. We shall conclude this, therefore, as Tully doth his contemplation of the soul's operations about the frame of nature, the fabric of the heavens, and motions of the stars. The mind which understands these things is like to that in the heavens which made them. Close quote. Smith dwells particularly on the unifying power of the soul, its capacity of collecting all its perceptions and bringing them to a center, and again on its capacity of looking before and after, and holding alike the future and the past before it in a living thread of consciousness, as evidences of its immortality. 
I cannot think, he concludes, quote, Epicurus could in his cool thoughts be so unreasonable as to persuade himself that all the shuffling and cutting of atoms could produce such a divine piece of wisdom as this is. What matter can thus bind up past, present, and future time together, which, while the soul of man doth, it seems to imitate, as far as its own finite nature will permit it to strive after an imitation of, God's eternity, and, grasping and gathering together a long series of duration into itself, makes an essay to free itself from the rigid laws of it, and to purchase to itself the freedom of a true eternity. Though it seems to be continually sliding from itself in those several vicissitudes and changes which it runs through in the constant variety of its own effluxes and emanations, yet it is always returning back again to its first original, by a swift remembrance of all those motions and multiplicity of operations which have begot in it the first sense of this constant efflux. As if we should see a sunbeam perpetually flowing forth from the bright body of the sun, and yet ever returning back to it again. It never loseth any part of its being, because it never forgets what itself was. And though it may number out never so vast a length of its duration, yet it never comes nearer to its old age, but carrieth a lively sense of its youth and infancy along with it, which it can at pleasure lay a fast hold on. Such a jewel as this is too precious to be found in a dunghill. Mere matter could never thus stretch forth its feeble force, and spread itself over all its own former pre-existences. We may as well suppose this dull and heavy earth we tread upon, to know how long it hath dwelt in this part of the universe that now it doth, and what variety of creatures have in all past ages sprung forth from it, and all those occurrences and events which have during all this time happened upon it. Close quote b having thus vindicated the distinction of the soul from matter in those relations which bring it most in contact with matter smith dwells with comparative brevity on those special properties characteristic of its essence which appear to him still more plainly to attest its high descent and destiny is not the soul clearly distinguished from the body by its power of self-action many of our actions it is true are automatic and some even unconscious but there are others which spring directly from the soul itself and are done solely at the dictate and by the commission of our own wills. It may be argued whether the first spring of such actions is in the understanding or the will, but in either case their spring is within the soul itself, and not in anything ab extra. The soul has innate force to stir up such thoughts and motions within itself as it finds itself most free to. How entirely distinct is such a force or power from any property of matter? A fatal determination sits in all the wheels of corporeal motion. But here the movement is from within, and as entirely free as reason can conceive. The soul finds itself non vi aliena sed sua moveri. And surely a being thus conscious of a freedom which absolves it from the rigid laws of matter cannot be legitimately confounded with matter, or supposed subject to its decay and dissolution. C. And this is still more evident in the view of the necessary and immutable truths, mathematical and moral, which the soul is capable of forming and holding clearly before it. To such truths there is nothing exactly corresponding in the world of experience. They are more true, transcendently more certain than any sensible thing can be. The apodictical principles of geometry are altogether inimitable in the purest matter that fancy can imagine. They must, quote, needs therefore depend upon something infinitely more pure than matter, which hath all that stability and certainty within itself which it gives to those infallible demonstrations. Quote. Nor are our higher moral axioms less, quote, badges of an eternal nature. Such are the archetypal ideas of justice, wisdom, goodness, 
truth, eternity, omnipotency, and all those either moral, physical, or metaphysical notions which are either the first principles of science or the ultimate complement and final perfection of it. These we always find to be the same, and know that no exorcism of material mutations have any power over them. Though we ourselves are but of yesterday and mutable every moment, yet these are eternal, and depend not upon any mundane vicissitudes. Neither could we ever gather them from our observation of any material thing where they were never sown. Underived from external experience, these ideas are the categories or affirmations of the soul itself, which must be held to share in their eternity and immutability. D. But the highest of all proofs of the soul's immortality is the indestructibility of true virtue. In this there is a divine force which unites us to God himself, and makes us feel partakers of the divine nature. Our higher speculations may beget within us a sufficient conviction of our higher destiny. Quote, but it is only true goodness and virtue in the souls of men that can make them both know and love, believe and delight themselves in their own immortality. Though every good man is not so logically subtle as to be able, by fit mediums, to demonstrate his own immortality, yet he sees it in a higher light. His soul, being purged and enlightened by true sanctity, is more capable of those divine irradiations whereby it feels itself in conjunction with God. It knows it shall never be deserted of that free goodness that always embraceth it. It knows that almighty love which it lives by to be stronger than death, and more powerful than the grave. It will not suffer these holy ones that are partakers of it to live in hell, or their souls to see corruption. And though worms may devour their flesh, and putrefaction enter into those bones that fence it, yet it knows that its Redeemer lives, and that it shall at last see him with a pure intellectual eye, which will then be clear and bright, when all that earthly dust, which converse with this mortal body filled it with, shall be removed. It knows that God will never forsake his own life which he hath quickened in it. He will never deny those ardent desires of a blissful fruition of himself, which the lively sense of his own goodness hath excited within it. Those breathings and gaspings after an eternal participation of him are but the energy of his own breath within us. Quote. 2. In passing to the other cardinal principle of all religion, Smith does not attempt any formal proof of the divine existence. He gives no hint of an acquaintance with Descartes' recent arguments on the subject, so familiar to both Cudworth and Moore. Nor does he bring into view the old argument from design, which must have been so well known to him in the pages of Cicero, whom he quotes frequently. He starts with the divine as already given in that spiritual side of humanity which he advocates so strongly adopting the language of Plotinus that he who reflects upon himself reflects upon his own original, and finds the clearest impression of some eternal nature and perfect being stamped upon his own soul. God, he says, quote, has so copied forth himself into the whole life and energy of man's soul, and that the lovely characters of divinity may be most easily seen and read of all men within themselves. As they say Phidias, the famous statuary, after he had made the statue of Minerva with the greatest exquisiteness of art, to be set up in the Acropolis at Athens, afterwards impressed his own image so deeply in her buckler that no one could delete or efface it without destroying the whole statue. And if we would know what the impress of souls is, it is nothing but God himself, who could not write his own name so as that it might be read, but only in rational natures. Neither could he make such, without imparting such an imitation of his own eternal understanding to them, as might be a perpetual memorial of himself within them. 
and whenever we look upon our own soul in a right manner, we shall find an urim and thummim there, by which we may ask counsel of God himself, who will have this always borne upon its breastplate. For though God hath copied forth his own perfections in this conspicable and sensible world, according as it is capable of entertaining them, yet the most clear and distinct copy of himself could be imparted to none else but to intelligible and inconspicable natures. And though the whole fabric of this visible universe be whispering out the notions of a deity, and always inculcates this lesson, of its divine origin, to the contemplators of it, yet we cannot understand it without some interpreter within. The heavens, indeed, declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork, and that which may be known of God, even his eternal power and Godhead, as St. Paul tells us, is to be seen in these external appearances. Yet it must be something within that must instruct us in all these mysteries, and we shall then best understand them when we compare that copy which we find of them within ourselves with that which we see without us. The schoolmen have well compared sensible and intelligent beings in reference to the deity, when they tell us that the one do only represent vestigia dei, the other faciem dei. According to this view, the divine existence is regarded as a postulate of our spiritual reason. Intuition at once reveals and guarantees it. The soul and God are correlative facts, the latter plainly involved in the former and attested thereby. Given the one, we have the other. Blot out the spiritual reason or soul as a distinctive element in humanity, and the divine existence, or at least any valid authentication of it, disappears. If we have no souls, we can never find God. If we have, it is unnecessary to search for his shadow in nature when his presence is clearly revealed within ourselves. The soul, according to our author, not only witnesses to the fact of the divine existence, but moreover to the divine character and attributes. Its affirmation of the divine is no mere blank assertion of a first principle, but a revelation of a living God, one in being, and infinite in power, freedom, and love. Quote, when we reflect upon our own idea of pure and perfect reason, we know that our own souls are not it, but only partake of it. Neither we nor any finite thing contain the source of reason within ourselves. And this very contingency and imperfection of our own rational consciousness forces us to recognize an absolute and perfect reason. The idea within us, in its very successiveness and growth, will not suffer us to rest in any reality short of the infinite an original and uncreated unity, the fountain of all special and partial being. Quote, As time lies in the basis of all finite life, whereby it is enabled by degrees to display all the virtue of its own essence, which it cannot do at once, so eternity lies at the foundation of divinity, whereby it becomes one without any shadow of turning, as St. James speaks, without any variety or multiplicity within itself, of which all created beings that are carried down in the current of time partake. In a similar manner, as we find within ourselves a will, the executive of our own reason and judgment, so we infer along with the divine reason an almighty will. Quote, the purest mind must also needs be the most almighty life and spirit, and as it comprehends all things, and sums them up together in its infinite knowledge, so it must also comprehend them all in its own life and power. Close quote. Such a will, being without limitations, is absolutely free. There are no bounds to it. Yet, quote, we must not conceive God to be the freest agent because he can do and prescribe what he pleaseth, and so set up an absolute will which shall make both law and reason, as some imagine. 
for as god cannot know himself to be any other than what indeed he is so neither can he will himself to be anything else than what he is or that anything else should swerve from those laws which his own eternal nature and understanding prescribes to it there is nothing therefore arbitrary or without reason in the divine will moving with the most perfect freedom yet it is never bereft of eternal light and truth to act by and although we may not be able to see a reason for all the divine actions we may be sure they were neither done against it nor without it from the same principles we may conclude the perfection of the divine love which in its very nature rises superior to all the passions and disturbances whereby our love is wont to explicate and unfold its affection towards its object as it is quote, infinitely ardent and potent so it is always calm and serene unchangeable having no such ebbings and flowings no such diversity of stations and retrogradations as love hath in us which ariseth from the weakness of our understandings that do not present things to us always in the same orient lustre and beauty the divine nature is thus according to our author the reflex perfection of all the higher faculties of the human soul it is their ideal realized and the very dimness of the ideal in us only suggests the more strongly the necessity of its realization in the divine there it is a power within us a presence haunting us how should we have it at all unless there is some divine reality corresponding to it he emphasizes in this respect our restless longing after supreme good this unsatisfied ideal is of itself enough to lead us to the knowledge of god unless our life be an illusion for what is its meaning does it not point us beyond ourselves to another in whom alone we can find satisfaction the very earnestness with which men pursue an unattainable happiness search for it through all the vast wilderness of this world and find it not does this not indicate a source of happiness above them and thus the heart as well as the reason of man witnesses to a living god he is the supreme reality in which all our aspirations orb and complete themselves Quote, not only the eternal reason and almighty mind which our understandings converse with but also that unstained beauty and supreme good after which our wills are perpetually aspiring having thus explained and vindicated the idea of god smith draws various deductions or inferences with which we need not occupy ourselves their main effect is to show on the one hand that communication is so to speak the natural expression of the fullness of the divine benignity and on the other hand that assimilation to the divine is the true intention and destiny of man he thus prepares the way for the further idea or main principle of religion revelation which emerges as the complementary truth to god and immortality end of chapter three part three